Our text today is out of Isaiah chapter 53, and this is one of those passages where, in a sense, I feel like I need to pull my shoes off. And what I mean by that is, in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses encountered God in the burning bush, God said, Moses, take your sandals off because the ground you're standing on is holy ground. While we believe that absolutely all Scripture is inspired by God, there are certain passages that just bring a, a sacred hush and an overwhelming awe to our spirits. And Isaiah 53 certainly can do that. I can still remember a sermon from 30 years ago. Dr. Jesse Boyd had come to a Bible conference at our church in Denver. And as a young preacher myself, I was able to attend. And I heard him that day preach on Isaiah 53. And as he described the suffering of Jesus Christ for me, I can still remember the tears coursing down my cheeks, and I sat there in stunned silence, overwhelmed by the presentation and the preaching of Jesus Christ and what he did for me. Isaiah 53 is considered the fourth of the servant songs in Isaiah. Four, or depending on the view of some commentators, five different passages in Isaiah where God speaks of his suffering servant. We believe that is depicting Jesus Christ. Many Jewish scholars see this passage as referring particularly to Israel. And Isaiah may have had them in mind, but I believe he had Christ in mind as well, prophetically. Because all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as well as the apostles Paul and Peter and the evangelist Philip, all in the New Testament, in their writing and their recorded preaching, connect Isaiah 53 and its prophecy with our Lord Jesus Christ. Allow me to read the first six verses of this passage. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He had a debt he did not owe. I had a debt I could not pay. I needed someone. To wash my sins away. 
And now I'm singing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. For Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. John Bunyan, some 400 years ago, called by some the last of the Puritans, was impacted by an experience that would influence his life, including his writing of what we know as the Christian classic, Pilgrim's Progress. When John Bunyan was 17 years old, he was part of the parliamentary army in England. And as the troop that he was part of was scheduled to go and besiege a nearby estate of the enemy, a young man named Hazelwood begged John to let him go in John's place and fight in this battle. John agreed. He later learned that when Hazelwood was assigned one night to stand sentry and watch for the enemy, he was shot through the head with a musket ball. And from that day on, that was an influence on John Bunyan that by God's providence, Bunyan should have died, but that young man was in his place. We might call that a substitute. When you join Hebron Church as a member, and by the way, if you're not a member and you're attend here, love to see you join. But in doing so, there are six Bible basics or six Christian essentials or six fundamentals of the faith that we ask every believer to affirm in joining this church because we are a Bible-believing church. Doctrines such as we believe in the inspiration and the authority of the Scriptures. We believe in the sin of all humankind. We believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. We believe in the virgin birth and the presence of the supernatural regarding Christ. We believe in the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ and His second coming. But there's also another doctrine that we affirm, and it's this. It is entitled, The Substitutionary Death of Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher from 150 years ago, called it the august or the revered doctrine of substitution. The Bible teaches us in Romans 5 and verse 8, God demonstrates His love toward us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. 1 John 4 and verse 10, Here in His love, Not that we loved Him, but that He loved us and gave His Son to be the atoning sacrifice, propitiation, King James Version, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, we are in a series on forgiveness. And we again today 
need to appreciate that it was Christ's substitutionary death for us that gives us forgiveness of our sins. Our pastor, Doug, has reminded us consistently that even with forgiveness, there is still a cost to all sin. And Christ paid that cost for us on the cross that we might be forgiven. Matthew 26 and verse 27, at the Last Supper, Jesus said, This is my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1 and verse 7 that Jerry read with us earlier, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin. 1 John 1 and verse 7, and the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, purifies us from all sin. Revelation 1 and verse 7, to Him who loved us and freed us from our sins by His own blood. It is by the substitutionary death of Christ we're forgiven. Now let us see Jesus in Isaiah 53 for a few moments and the suffering He went through for our forgiveness. First of all, note His anguish. I'm sorry, His appearance in Isaiah 53 and the latter part of verse 2. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to Him. Nothing in His appearance that we should desire Him. Now, when that is read, some people almost get the impression that Jesus was physically unattractive. What does this mean, that he had no beauty or majesty in his appearance that we should desire him? Well, some understand that, that there was nothing that attracted the people of that day to him as the Messiah. You see, he was most ordinary in the eyes of the people of that day. Mark chapter 6 and verse 3, when he goes to his own village, apparently Nazareth, and seeks to teach and to minister, the Bible says the people were upset. And they said, isn't this the carpenter? We know his family. He's just an average Joe around here. Who is he to think he can come and teach us? Then we travel over to John and 1 and verse 46. And Nathaniel, before his belief in Jesus, represented the attitude of many because Jesus was from Nazareth. And Nathaniel said, as many did in that day and time, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And then even the religious leaders of that day, knowing that he was from Galilee, said, search and see, John 7, 52, no prophet comes out of Galilee. In other words, Jesus in his work was considered average. Jesus in the areas where he was from were considered to be areas that were not impressive. And so some take this to mean that even though he was God's son, even though he was truly the Messiah, even though he's the creator of all and king of all, he was not even appealing. To the people of that day, they said he's an ordinary carpenter from the wrong side of the tracks. Some see it as his physical appearance that they weren't attracted to. It's interesting. Uh, Leonard Ravenhill, the great revivalist, said there were three things that St. Augustine wished he could have seen in his earthly life. And they were these. He said he wished, one, he could have seen the Apostle Paul preaching. He said, too, he wished he could have seen the imperial grandeur of Rome 
in its heyday. And finally, he wished he could have seen the physical person of the Lord Jesus Christ when he was here upon this earth. It's interesting, we do not have a biblical description of what Jesus actually looked like when he was here upon the earth. There are some ancient writings, how accurate they are, we don't know. Some of them describe him as having golden hair, having almost an effeminate appearance, as being taller than most, as having drooping shoulders and so on. These, none of them are scriptural and we cannot guarantee their accuracy. What I would say to you is this, that what we can draw from the scriptures is apparently Jesus was, if I say it carefully, not ugly in any sense, but apparently of a most ordinary appearance. Because in the Gospel of John, the Bible tells us that when they come to see the Lord Jesus in the garden to arrest him, they have, they're talking to him himself. Apparently there's no halo. Apparently there's no physique that makes him stand out against the others. I know it's nighttime, but they have torches. They're talking to him. And they, he says, who are you seeking? They said, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. They're talking to him. And they didn't even know he was the one they were going to arrest. And he has to ask them that twice before they finally arrest him. Along with that, you travel back to Mark chapter 14, and Judas Iscariot has arranged with those whom he's betrayed Jesus to for 30 pieces of silver. He said, when we get into the garden, he said, the one I kiss, that's the one you're going to arrest. So apparently he did not stand out from the others. And Judas had to go and physically identify him with a kiss of greeting so they would know which one to arrest. And while I in no way would ever disregard the personal physical appearance of our Lord, the Bible does not indicate that he was uniquely physically attractive. And then for some, When it says there's no beauty to desire him, nothing is an appearance to attract us to him. Some travel back to Isaiah 52 in verse 14, where the Bible says his appearance was disfigured beyond human likeness. His form was marred more than human likeness. In other words, when Jesus went through his time of suffering for us, he ended up not even resembling a human being. You see, the Bible tells us, for example, in Luke chapter 22 and verse 63, that the guards who first arrested Jesus when he was initially in their care, they beat him. Then the Bible goes on to say in Matthew chapter 26, that, uh, and, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 27, that the Bible, the Bible tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ was then struck in the face repeatedly by those who were around the high priest. And then the Bible goes on to tell us that the soldiers took him and they placed a crown of thorns on his head and they placed an oriental staff in his hand which kings would hold. And then they took that staff and the Bible says they struck him on the head again and again. So he slapped in the face, he struck in the face, he's beaten, thorns crushing down on his brow, a reed, a staff beating down on his head. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 50 and verse 6 prophetically, that he gave his cheeks to those who pulled out his beard. Apparently they ripped the beard right out of his face. 
Then the Bible tells us that Pilate had him flogged, old King James. It says scourged. Psalm 129 and verse 3, the plowman plowed my back. They made their furrows long. That Roman cat of nine tails that beat the back of Christ, it's like a tractor with its blades putting furrows down a field, cutting in deep. We haven't even gotten to the cross. Virgin noted in his sermon when Jesus is crucified on that cross and the cross is dropped into the hole where it would stand upon the earth. Every bone was probably dislocated because the Psalms tell us in Psalm 36 and verse 20, all my bones are out of joint. Apparently when that cross thudded into that hole in the ground, it jerked every bone in Jesus' body out of joint. He didn't even appear like a normal human being when he was done suffering for us. In his appearance, what a cost for our forgiveness. Secondly, I see his anguish. The Bible says in the first part of verse 3 of this chapter, he was despised and rejected of mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, Again, the old King James, many of us know, a man of sorrows. Acquainted with pain. Some have suggested in that, did he know pain physically himself? In other words, was Jesus often sick or ill or sickly? I would doubt that. I can't guarantee one way or the other. But as a healer, I would think he could heal himself. But along with that, the many miles that he traveled over all of Palestine to preach, the multitudes of hours that he gave daily to minister, the demand was unbelievable. Someone sickly or weak themselves could not have met that demand. Some have suggested it had to do with his healing ministry. Because the Bible tells us in the book of Matthew in chapter 8, after he had cast out many demons and he had healed many of their sicknesses and their afflictions, it likens it to Isaiah chapter 53 where it says, and he bore our infirmities and he carried our sorrows and our sicknesses. Some see that as a doctor, a healer, a medical person who is so empathetic to the diseases and the struggles of those to whom they are ministering, they feel that within themselves. Did Christ take all that disease within himself? Did he know the burden of the hurt of all those who were suffering? We know at the tomb of Lazarus who experienced death, Jesus wept. I know of a doctor who in the Johnstown flood gave himself so physically to care for the multitude of victims that he ruined his own health in the process. But perhaps this anguish, a man familiar with pain, speaks of his heart or the heartache that Christ knew in coming to this earth to suffer for us. He knew the heartache of rejection by his people. He weeps over Jerusalem as he cries out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not. He knew the heartache of the rejection of his own people. John said he came to his own and his own wouldn't receive him. He knew the heartache of the betrayal of his own apostle. One of the saddest verses to me in the entire Bible 
is in Luke 22 and verse 48, where Jesus is kissed by Judas in the garden and arrested. And Jesus looks at Judas, who for three years has been one of his 12 best friends. And he said, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And then he knew the heartache of his father abandoning him when he cries out from the cross in Matthew 26, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He who has been one with the Father from eternity with not the slightest hint of any division, any disagreement, forever and ever. Now on the cross for your sin and mine, he is abandoned and he suffers the loss of connection and intimacy that he has known with his heavenly father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, the heartache of him who should not ever have to suffer at all. What he went through for you and I. And then finally, I see his agony. The Bible says in Isaiah 53 and verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Pierced. Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. John 19 and verse 34, they're checking out the Lord Jesus Christ to see if he's already dead, otherwise they would break his leg. The Bible says that a soldier takes and pierces his side with a spear and there is a sudden flow of blood and water. Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, the great sermon of Pentecost that Peter is preaching. And he says to the Jews of that day who are there, he said, you along with wicked men, the rulers that have been involved both Jewish and Roman in condemning Christ, he said, you with wicked men have Caused Christ to die, nailing him to the cross, pierced. Finally, Revelation 1 and verse 7. And the Bible says, when he comes back, every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him. The disciples, after his resurrection, say to Thomas, we've seen the Lord, John chapter 20, beginning in verse 24. And Thomas said, I won't believe it. Until I can put my fingers in the marks made by the nails and put my hand in his side. And Jesus soon appears and says, Thomas, come, see my hands. Put your hand, put your finger in the nail mark. Put your hand into my side where the the spear pierced it. And he said, now stop doubting and believe. Pierced for our transgressions. Crushed. Oh, King James again, bruised. And that term crushed there in the Hebrew literally means to beat to pieces or to break in pieces. How significant that at the Last Supper and every communion that we celebrate as Christians, just as when our pastor Doug takes the bread and tears it apart, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 regarding the communion, on the night he was betrayed, The Lord Jesus took bread, and when he broke it, he said, this is my body given for you. Now, never misunderstand, Jesus' bones were not broken. 
You see, the Passover lamb of Exodus and Numbers in the Old Testament, though it was killed for the Passover, the bones of it were not to be broken. And when they came to break the legs of those crucified, they didn't break Jesus' leg because Jesus was already dead. And that again fulfilled the biblical picture that he as the Passover lamb had no bone broken, but his body through the torment and the torture and the crucifixion, his body broken open, his blood spilled. He said, this is my body broken. He was crushed for our transgression. Then in verse 6, this portion is concluded when the Bible says, And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, in his explanatory notes on Isaiah 53, says that term has laid on him. He said that's the idea from the Hebrew of having met together. In other words, like the rivers flow to the sea, all the sins of all time, of all the world, of all of us, came together upon Christ that day. Oh, what an agony. More than the physical torment, the suffering for sin. The Bible tells us, or Spurgeon told us in his, one of his sermons on the suffering of Christ, he said that uh, when Jesus died, it was the meeting of all sin together. He said, like you see in the sky, the storm clouds, as we call it, gathering together, and it grows dark, and the rain will come. So he said, the sins of all the ages and all the people, all your sin, all my sin, it came together and met upon Jesus Christ that day. Like the Bible says in 1 Peter 2 and verse 24, He bore our sins in His own body on the cross. And I want you to be thankful this morning that not only did all the sin, all my sin, all your sin, all sin, meet at Christ that day, but so did the justice and love of God. The justice in demanding a payment for sin. And so the judgment came upon Christ. But God's love, knowing that we should be judged for our sin, He sent the substitute, Jesus Christ, to die in our place and take the judgment for our sin there upon the cross. He died for you. He died for me. John Newton is well famed for writing hymns and perhaps the most beloved hymn of all, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. And by the way, I just want to say too, if you're interested in knowing something about these saints of God whom we quote sometimes, go to our church library up in the parlor. There's a biography there on John Bunyan and John Newton and Charles Spurgeon, the ones that we often mention in our sermon, these great saints of God. You can read about them and learn from them and be stirred by them spiritually. But John Newton wrote a lesser known hymn than Amazing Grace. But it is so appropriate as we conclude our thoughts on the substitute providing forgiveness for us that we in turn might be forgiven. And it goes like this. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood. He fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. 
Sure, never till my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sin his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. A second look he gave which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I die, but thou mayst live. Oh, can it be upon a tree the Savior died for me? My soul is thrilled. My heart is filled to think. He died.